Hey everybody, welcome to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm here with Terry Fakes and we wanted to do something that we've done before but is a little bit off the beaten path for us. We want to walk through an article that we think is really important and talk about the argument of the article, summarize it, and then expand on it a little bit, use it as a dialogue partner. And uh, we link to this article in the Weekly Speak this week. And this is just a reminder, if you listen to the podcast but you don't get the Weekly Speak, just go to SoWeSpeak.com and sign up. That's a weekly news briefing that we put out. It has the major news stories going on with links and best reads to keep you informed without being conformed. And uh, this is one of the more interesting articles that I've come across in a while. It's, it's an article that I really have wanted to read and uh, I'm really thankful to have found it. I, I actually know nothing about the author. I saw this in an email from the Hedgehog Review, and they put out some really good stuff uh, periodically. I'll, I'll look back through what they've got, and this one is called Truth and Consequences. Uh, I believe you know the author a little bit on, on this. Give us some background. Yeah, just a little bit, not a lot of background. Sophia Rosenfeld is the author, and she is the... Walter Annenberg Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. She just wrote a book, which I have not read, but I heard about, called Democracy and Truth. Uh, I believe it came out this year in 2019. I have not yet read it, but it's a study of the democracy and the democratic system and how essential a shared understanding of truth is. And I believe this article develops some of those ideas in a shorter form. Yeah, this has got to be either an excerpt or a summary of that book because it takes on a question that I think a lot of people are wondering about talking through, doing work on right now, and that is what's the relationship between truth or conceptions of truth, lack of conceptions of truth, and the democratic system that we find ourselves in? And so it would be pretty easy on the front end just to sketch maybe the reason why we feel like we need this article and... and uh, one of the things I like about it is whatever side of the debate that you're on, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or you refuse to be put into the two-party system or you know whatever you call yourself, the interesting thing is the more you listen from both sides, everybody has similar complaints about truth and democracy put together. So it's so usually when so say you're a, you're a Democrat and, and you feel like the Republicans or the Trump supporters in the country, have basically abandoned truth and, uh, you know, the president obviously has declared war on the media and he doesn't like factual reporting and, and all of that. And, and you think that there's a big group of people who have this set ideology, this nationalist ideology, and they are uh, threatening the freedoms and American ideal that you hold dear. Well, the interesting thing is the Republicans feel the exact same way about the Democrats. They think there's this narrative of inclusion and and uh, kind of the negative side of diversity and quotas and, and all of that that has so spun the entire narrative of government in America to the extent that the actual facts don't matter anymore. So it's interesting to hear that everybody seems like they have some of the same frustrations. And the question then is, how do we decide who is right and who is wrong? And that's where this article comes in, is to say, what is the relationship between democracy and truth? And as I was reading this, it reminded me of the quote that, that uh, I've heard from Thomas Jefferson. 
And he said basically that mankind cannot be both ignorant and free. Uh, that you have to eat, you have to be one or the other. You can be free and informed, or you can be ignorant and you can be a slave. But you cannot be uh, both of those at the same time. And so the American experience and ideals of the Constitution depend, in some way or another, on being informed and being educated and being able to make analytical decisions and distinctions to arbitrate between competing worldviews. So that's a little bit of the of the cultural situation that we're coming into with this article. Uh, why don't we do a quick overview of, of the argument and then we'll we'll tease that out. So where does she start? Well, uh, before I jump into that, I'd, I'd add something you just said about the Democrats and Republicans. I think it's it's even a worse situation than that in our culture today. We've, we've had polarization and disagreements about who's telling the truth and what facts are real facts, what's fake news. But in the cultural Marxism that's prevalent in our country, and when I say cultural Marxism, what I mean is literally that, a Marxist idea applied to our culture. And Marx's idea, we've spoken about this before, is that the story of history is the story of persecuted groups, groups in power, groups out of power. So instead of just two political parties, we have all of these intersectional identities, women, blacks, Asians, white men. We break into these groups. We have a group identity, uh, usually around our shared story of persecution or our shared story of oppression, and that becomes our truth. And so we really see a very fragmenting culture. I mean, that's easy for anyone to see, but I think that's what's behind it. So the first point uh, that I see is that Rosenfeld says democracy requires a shared truth, some kind of shared truth, not that we all agree, but at least a serviceable set of parameters around which we can all identify. She makes yeah. the point then, uh, just in summary, is that the evidence is no longer persuasive if you don't have a shared set of values, truth claims, at least some minimal set. And consequently, you then need an arbiter. And in our society, she contends that experts, whether subject matter experts, people in politics, people in science, have begun to monopolize truth by becoming the referees, if you will. And then I think she finishes the article up by talking about why it is important in our democracy to find some shared truth, at least some minimal level of shared truth. Would you, would you agree with that overview of her argument? Yeah, that, so the, fir the first point she makes I think is really crucial that she pointed out, and, and that is she asserts that for democracy to work, for people to be able to govern themselves, there has to be, in her words, the citizens must agree in some minimal way about what reality looks like. And the interesting thing is if you're listening to the podcast, you're, you, you might be thinking, why on a podcast about Christian worldview and how to read the Bible and all that are we talking about this article? Well, the fundamental claim that she's making is central to what we're trying to do on this podcast, which is talk about what the world is really like. What is reality? And until you have some kind of shared agreement on what reality is like, you really can't have dialogue. And so the problem is, is worse than 
There are factions in our country that disagree with each other over fundamental issues. The, the problem is there are people in our country who fundamentally disagree about the nature of reality. And from a biblical worldview, we, we understand why that is the case. So sin is not just something that you do. Sin is right. not just something where you make a bad choice and you have to face consequences for it. Biblically speaking, we agree that sin is actually something that corrupts our minds. And the consequences of sin in, in Romans 1 is that we've been given over to a depraved mind. Whether that's selfishly uh, satisfying our own desires, whether that's competing and subjugating other people, whether that is in the way that we cannot discern the will of God, we believe that actually sin affects our doctrine of anthropology. And we understand that to mean that you reject fundamental things about the universe the way that it should be. There is a God who has created this out of nothing. He loves us. He sent his son to save us, all of that kind of stuff. If you reject all of that, it doesn't just affect your religious life. It affects all of your life. It affects your mind. So what happens is, much like the story of the Tower of Babel, we have a group of human beings who can't even really communicate with each other. They're not capable of finding any common ground. And what this article is saying is, and when that is the case, it's actually really, really hard to have a democratic society. Right. And, and in fact, I was thinking the same example. The Tower of Babel is the archetypal story for what we're talking about, and we are literally experiencing it, not around language. But in the Tower of Babel, people were united, and then sin enters their hearts to be like God. And what you see as a result of that is they have different languages, and that's not the significant part. The significant part is that basically breaks them into tribal groups. And think mm -hmm. about today our identity groups, our identity politics as breaking into tribal groups. And then if you watch the history after that, they begin to talk, literally talk past each other because they literally cannot understand one another very much like today. And the end result of that is hostility and war. And we're seeing hostility in our culture. It's that same story being played out. Sin has devastating effects. They're just not as obvious sometimes as we like to think. But I do believe sin is dividing and sin generates hostility. And a democratic government, if you think about it, there's a reason we've never seen a real Republican form of democratic government uh, in history that worked until the United States, and that is because I think human beings uh, cannot come together without some shared truth. I think that uh, Rosenfeld is exactly right about that. Yeah, she uses a really interesting term. Um, she says that because there's no, there's no method of arbitration without a shared vision of reality, it breaks people into epistemic tribes. Mm -hmm. So that would mean there's different groups of people have different ways of knowing things. And that becomes really obvious when you look around. One of the phenomenon I think is, is kind of funny now, I mean, when you're on the wrong side of it, it's, it's definitely not funny, is that if there's a headline about something, that's going to be what people remember, whether or not it's true. So, for example, if something comes out and catches fire on social media and uh, that becomes the public perception, then whether or not that had any footing in reality, that's going to be the narrative forever. And it's going to be surrounded by 
basically your word versus mine forever after that. And so the first word in a lot of these epistemic tribes is the word, whether or not there's any follow-up, whether or not there's any truth in it, uh, that's going to be people's perception of it. Now, we, we obviously all think, or at least on the surface, all want to believe that we are the most rational of the epistemic tribes. Right. Um, but an interesting thing that we have to consider, and this takes me back to uh, doing debate in high school. One of the things that's so interesting about high school debate is when you present a case, you have a value, which is the highest thing that you're bringing to the debate. So maybe you're valuing justice or something like mm-hmm. that. And then you have your points, your arguments. But you also have this other little piece of your case called the criterion. And nobody ever understands, like when you go back and judge high school debates now, nobody ever understands what the criterion actually is. The criterion ends up being another value. But, but that in of itself to me is the case study for our cultural dialogue. The, what the criterion is supposed to do is weigh or uh, put parameters on your value. So you might say, like, I'm valuing justice, and my criterion for justice is utility, which would be the greatest good for the greatest number. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to define justice? Well, we're going to know that we've achieved justice when we have the greatest good for the greatest number. Okay, well, that's, that's helpful because I might define justice as that which is equitable, that which is fair to everyone. And if I think justice means what is fair to everyone and you think justice means the greatest good for the greatest number, then uh, we could both think we've achieved justice and achieved very different things. So to apply that to our current landscape, the problem is we have the same values. We, We all want to have a more perfect union. We want a better United States. We want, you know, to get specific. Almost everybody in America wants the problems like poverty and the immigration system Mm -hmm. and welfare and all that to be solved. And that's our value. The problem is we don't have a shared criterion by which to weigh whether or not we're actually doing that. I mean, do you agree with that? Oh, I absolutely uh, agree with that. For example, I'll give you uh, something that happened recently in the news with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whom I love. I mean, she's an endless source of counterexamples for things like this. For Let me give you an example. She's, <laughs> so you, you don't love her on her own merits? Well, I think she's talented. I mean, I, I have nothing negative to say here. I really I sincerely want to say, listen to how she handled this, and you'll see a perfect example of what you're talking about. For example, we tend to think that truth, uh, maybe perhaps you and I, let's just say our view of truth is, well, tell me what the actual facts are. I mean, the actual observations of reality, and we believe that's indicative of truth. There was an interesting uh, case recently where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was called out for saying things that were really clearly Uh, contradictory to the facts, and she's not the only person to do this, so don't take this as a political statement, clearly contradictory to the facts. And when the media, uh, when the reporter asked her and called her on that, a rare event, but in this case they did, she said this, and this is very interesting. She said, I am morally right about this. So she couldn't say, Mm -hmm. well, I was right about the facts. She said, that's not as important as me being morally right about this. So her idea of truth is what comports 
with your ideological values, whereas other people would say what comports with the observations of reality. And I think that's what you're saying is she thinks that what she said was just because it met the criteria of being consistent with her values. Another person would say, wait a minute, what you're saying isn't just because it doesn't meet the criteria of the facts. Right. Now, this is a perfect example, and, and she, she is the ultimate example of this. She's the, she is the absolutely perfect postmodern politician. Yeah. She, is, she embodies the will to power in the sense that you make power structures and then you use them for your own purposes. And uh, instead of calling that evil or something like that, I, I, I don't think she's an evil person. I think she's severely mistaken about the nature of reality. Um, and I think anybody who believes in facts should think that. But what she's doing is so revelatory. And the funny thing is there are people on every side of this debate that are doing it. Exactly. She's just so clearly and obviously doing it. What, what she's doing is, is that power play of saying, okay, I have the moral high ground. And so the details, the counterexamples, the pros and cons list, you know, whatever, is irrelevant to uh, whether it be positively creating something new or whether it be negatively solving something that's wrong. If we all agree on what's wrong and that we want to do something about it, then facts are ultimately fairly meaningless. You know, that's a great – I'm sorry. That's a great point because – and again, I think – you make a good point that uh, the pursuit of power is not limited to one political party. We're we're not taking political sides, but your your evidence is really good. Frederick Nietzsche is famous for having said, "There are no facts, only interpretations." And so, what Rosenfeld is getting at, and what you were getting at, is the idea that once you get into your tribe, facts become very malleable. They really don't necessarily relate to your truth. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, I think that's I think that's the predominant mentality, and I, I think there are definitely Christians who are doing this as well. Um, you know, when I think about the ascendance of the religious right, religious right is a really interesting phrase because it's a compound of two things that I think are both true in certain senses about the religious right, but combined are not true. So it is a religious group. They are right about a lot of things, but I think the religious right is neither uh, religiously right nor politically right some of the time. Mm-hmm. So when you look at, uh, at the Christian position, what we have to be careful of is not playing the exact same game that we see everyone else playing. So for example, uh, we need to be careful of, of thinking things like we can leverage all of our political capital and all of our political positions on one issue because we're right about that issue. So in, in the previous election, it, it's an easy case. And I'm not even saying this is the wrong position. I'm just saying this is the wrong argument for the position. So it's, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm a one-issue voter. I'm voting for Supreme Court nominee uh, positions from Trump, and I don't care anything else about what he's doing. That's, that's one position. Right. It's another position entirely, though, to say that because Trump or whoever is going to appoint the right people to the Supreme Court, that vindicates him in doing everything else that he does that may not be morally Correct. acceptable. Yeah. 
Those are two very different things. So what I think we have to do is, is, is two things. First of all, we have to be audacious enough to believe that when you're right, you can also account for facts. I mean, yeah. is it too much to ask of our ideologies that we support them with evidence working through difficult issues, bringing nuance to the table? Or are we going to settle for the fact that if you get one thing right ideologically, then you don't have to actually do any of the legwork or any of the tough work to be right in the details or work out the details uh, to be in the dominant position? That's the first thing I think that, that we've got to be mindful right. of. And then the second one is, we have to be okay with tension and unknown and less than ideal circumstances when we have a lack of complete information, which is getting to be the case in every political discussion that we're in. How does that, how does that hit you? Oh, I completely agree. In fact, Rosenfeld goes on and makes the point first that for a democracy to work, you have to have some shared, at least some serviceably uh, shared ideas about what truth is or how one might get to truth then makes the point that we do not have that, whether it's because, you know, this various epistemic tribes, meaning tribes that see how you get to truth differently, says we don't have that. And she makes a really good observation. She says, this leads to a breakdown of trust. And the fact Mm -hmm. that you now no longer trust any claim by another tribe, if you will. And that breakdown of trust means that you can call anything fake news. And it, that could literally be fake news. And what are you really saying with fake news? You're basically saying, I don't trust that you're telling me what's actually true. In other words, you are just another tribe. And unfortunately, I think the media has become a tribe or several tribes. For example, a lot of people on the left look at Fox News and say, I don't trust anything you're saying. Maybe some of your facts are right, but I have no trust in that, and vice versa. If you were on the right and you were listening to MSNBC, you might say the same thing. So I do think that she points out something really important. This lack of trust means that everyone thinks there's a lot of untruth running around. Yeah, it reminds me, we had a conversation a couple of months ago about the state of journalism in the United States, and one of the things that we were discussing on that and one of the takeaways from that podcast episode was uh, until you have moral or professional constraints on the guild of journalism, uh, by that we mean until you have reporters who understand that they they have a universal standard that they need to abide to. So that would be things we talked about, uh, reporting yeah. all the information that you actually know. So you can't selectively pick what information fits your preconceived bias and then just report that. That's, that's out of bounds for journalism. Until you have a code like that, you don't have any common ground on information, then you do have distrust of what people are telling you and not telling you. Now, what she does with that is kind of interesting, and I, I'm not sure I agree with the direction she goes here, but this is at least worth talking about. She says when you when you get to a situation like that, so when you have no common ground, uh-huh. when you realize that the, mar- the Mills marketplace of ideas does not work, that if we just put the ideas out into the marketplace, then eventually all the best ideas are going to rise to the top. The true ideas are going to rise to the top. Once we figure out that doesn't work, what happens is you enter into a place where you have an information nihilism. Nobody knows what's true. People just decide what they want to believe and not believe. 
And then she makes the move to say, when that happens, what what, what inevitably takes place is that a a small group of technocrats begin to take over and shape the information based on their own narratives. And I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, She said the... The hope for that is that the technocratic impulse doesn't go unchecked, but that people begin to band together and push back and they begin to expose things, especially in a free market system. You hope that you don't get to a place where there's a monopoly on information. Um, Anyway, we got a little bit post-apocalyptic here at the end of this article. Do you think she's – do you think this is – True? Do you think this is overblown? Uh, yes, I think it is the weakest part of the article to me because I don't necessarily see it going that way. I tend to see tribalism, even if it's, quote, truth tribalism, information tribalism, moving historically like we've seen everything else, and that is conflict, the uh, pursuit of power, and the oppression of those with whom uh, you do not agree. I, I tend to see that in a darker way. I don't see us being rational enough for all of our pride and our believing that we're very civilized to go to moderating institutions. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, give you two. Climate change. So the idea of climate change is a, is a faith issue. I mean, we all realize that is a, certainly a tribal idea. Some people believe it's true. Some people believe it's not true. I mean, it's almost religious. Well, theoretically, there is a group of technocrats who have run these models and say, no, seriously, here is the science. But that hasn't changed anything. Partly because it's yeah. very soft science, but but not not getting into the weeds. My point is that moderating group has not been successful, and I'll give you a scarier one: uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. The moderating group in our society ultimately, it seems like, often comes back to the courts to decide. And today, if you talk to people. Depending on their decision, you'll hear either they are really doing what they're supposed to do and upholding the Constitution, and at the same time, you'll hear others saying these are activist judges trying to mold our social fabric. So I worry that our moderating institutions, whether it's technocrats or our democratic institutions, will not survive the tribalism. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I think her take is a little bit cynical on technocrats. I think if you read between the lines, she's talking about social media companies, Google, Facebook, in which case, uh, how much active narrative shaping, view suppression is going on. That's something I think we're finding out right now. I really right. don't know. I, I did see in the I did see in the news this morning that Facebook just got hit with a five billion dollar Fine for some of the aftermath of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which sounds like a lot until you realize that their last quarter revenue was fifteen billion dollars. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's what is it, like a twelfth of their yearly revenues or, or, or profits. So, I don't know how that's going to play out. I do think there's some censorship going on. Ultimately, the, the it's a moot point because here's the bottom line. If you do have a group of people or a group of companies who begin to regulate the narratives, the result is exactly the same as if that were happening on a large scale in thousands and thousands of pockets across the country. Uh, 
there's there's two options. Either the government comes in and begins to regulate, which then becomes another technocracy, but now the government is doing it, or you have the people in in mass who are setting the standards for what they will and will not support and consume, and you hope that in the end they will push back on the things that are false or Machiavellian or cynical, and they will accept the things that are true and good and beautiful, all of that. So I I think this comes down to a similar place that we got to in the journalism conversation, which is all of this kind of depends on what you're willing to put up with and what you're going to consume. So on 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 the political front, when are the American people going to get fed up with Uh, narratives that are dislocated from facts. When that day occurs, the political system will change because they are subservient to clicks and viewership and donations and all that. And until that happens, I call me pessimistic. I don't think that's going to change. Yeah, I'm I'm really a pessimist about our political situation. I'm not a doomsday person. I think democracy has been very resilient. I do think this is probably one of the greater challenges to democracy. But on the other hand, I'm extremely optimistic. If I can bring the gospel into this conversation, given what Roosevelt uh, Rosenfeld, excuse me, is talking about, I think this is actually a good time for the gospel. And the reason I say that is. When you see these epistemic tribes, when you see these identity groups, and each has their own version of, quote, truth, or what's important, or what reality really looks like, uh, and those are very competing ideas. When you get that, and it fragments and it fragments even further, I think there's something in people that is hardwired to want some kind of holistic understanding of life that supersedes their tribe. When I look at the book of Acts, I see the Apostle Paul, for example, going to tribe after tribe, meaning culture after culture. He's going to the Roman culture, the Greek culture. He's in Persia with the Persian culture and the Turkish culture. And the gospel has an appeal that it overrides all of those tribal ideas. So I am optimistic that this kind of fragmented society is fertile ground for the truth of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think to close with a couple of takeaways, you know, why do we care about this? Why are we speaking about this? The first one would be we as Christians do believe that we have access and knowledge of what the universe is really like, what ultimate reality is like. And so every time we share the gospel, we don't only have the most important component of it in mind, which is the salvation of the people around us, the reuniting with God, the uh, peace, peaceful relationship with him through the cross of Christ. That's obviously most important. Mm-hmm. But behind that... Christians have to believe that the health of society comes through democratic systems because not just we believe in in the uh, worth of the individual, but because we believe that the collective whole is benefited when healthy individuals thrive. So if you look to the oldest definitions of politics in Aristotle or in Plato's Republic, for example, The goal of the republic, the goal of of any political system, is to produce virtuous people. And the reason that's the case is because virtuous people uh, propagate virtue. They 
also make good decisions. They flourish. They're honorable and equitable Mm -hmm. and and, uh, loving towards one another. Well, if you're a Christian, you believe that we actually understand what virtue is and we understand how to get it, which is to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. So if we have a hope for society being transformed, it's not apart from the gospel. It's not just through a religious humanitarian service. It's through the individual transformation of every person through the, the preaching of the gospel and the discipleship of the saints. The other thing I would add is uh, the Christian worldview for all of the, uh, the bad press coverage we get in, in, in the news is the most conducive to a factual, truth-seeking society. Right. What we're seeing right now is a secular society has no inherent reason to be truth-seeking. Now, they have every reason in the world to be self-seeking. They have every reason right. in the world to be power-seeking. They have every reason to, to uh, seek that their own narratives get carried out to the, to the widest group. But there's no inherent reason why a secular society wants to pursue truth for its own sake. But as Christians, we believe that God speaks truth. He's given us uh, an ability to understand the truth. We want to seek truth. So we're not afraid of facts. We're not afraid of details. We're not afraid of working through things with people who believe different things than we do. But uh, we also can't be naive about that as we enter into these kinds of discussions. I agree. I'd I'd probably tie in kind of to finish off this article. One of the quotes from the very end she makes her final point is that truth matters. And one of the reasons for that is truth matters as a form of collective aspiration. And what she means by that is without a shared truth, we have no shared collective aspiration for what is the meaning of life? What does human flourishing look like? Why are we here? And I think as I look around on a practical level, Uh, Whatever the philosophy, whatever the religion, whatever the political ideology, history has shown all of those things to be unworkable. Christianity is the only thing that has accurately diagnosed the human condition throughout all of history and has helpfully given the solution to that. I think that the gospel provides that, uh, you know, the God-shaped hole in everyone. That's another way of saying a collective aspiration, if you will. I believe the gospel is the only thing that fits our collective aspiration, and every other ideology will fall short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the final takeaway here for me uh, in line with that is that as Christians, then we don't have to be afraid of truth and fact-finding, even when it's not politically expedient. Right. Um, in, in a lot of ways, we're doing the opposite of what we see politicians, some uh, political Christian leaders doing, which is advocating a narrative regardless of whether or not it, it lines up with truth and experience and all of those things. What we need to be doing from a, from a worldview and a mindset standpoint as Christians is we need to be okay finding out what really happened, yeah. uh, what is true, and uh, if that means that we don't get to as quickly accomplish our political goals, then so be it. We're not going to lose our souls in the process. So uh, there's a lot of political implications for that, and I don't want to draw all those out, but I do want to say as, as believers, we have a higher obligation to the truth than we do to our immediate political aims. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.